Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Challoner and you join us on a rainy autumn day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on today's programme, I'm delighted to be joined by Annie Barr, MBE. Annie is the CEO of AB Health Group, a healthcare training and consultancy provider based in the North Northeast, which serves the whole of the UK and China, the US and Singapore. Uh, Annie, very warm welcome to you today and thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you very much for asking me. It's a real pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves with us. Um, The whole reason we're here is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. And normally we dive straight into the subject. But just considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I do feel it's appropriate that we start with that. uh, Because it has proven to be one of the most significant challenges of our time for leaders within all walks of life. But for yourselves in the healthcare industry, to what extent has it affected you and your operations? Operations. Uh, certainly, it's affected us greatly. Um, we are um, mainly a provider of training services, so mainly what we do is face-to-face training. What has happened is um, that obviously we haven't been able to do that for several months now. So since about March, um, right through to, to to present time, so um, we've had to think about you know different ways of doing things and diversifying a little bit. So um, so that's what we've been doing as a company, um, trying to restructure, uh, reorganise, and um, and still stay afloat, which we have managed to do. And with regards to sort of how you've adapted and pivoted to deal with those challenges, what are some of the ways in which you've diversified? So um, being a healthcare professional myself, um, I have understood the the need for. Um, you know, training and um, and professional development despite um, COVID and despite the, the restrictions that that has imposed on face-to-face training. So we decided that we would try doing some uh, webinars, live webinars. Um, so it's been, you know, it's been a learning curve, uh, you know, using, uh, you know, interactive uh, ways of um, delivering training, mm-hmm. but it has been very, very good. Um most people in the health service have um, enjoyed you know, the webinars because actually they can ask a, a question live just as well as they were face-to-face with you in a, um, in a meeting room or a training facility. Um, the only thing that um, sometimes is an issue is if, it, if there's an element of a practical uh, application to, uh, mm. to the training. But um, we've managed to um, you know, overcome that um, by um, being a, a little bit more uh, innovative in terms of what we can do on the webinar. So, you know, we can actually still tell people, um, you know, how to give an injection properly or, you know, how to, um, you know, address a wound properly or whatever it is that we're doing at the time. We can always still do that because we have the training aids that, you know, are able to, we're able to use and demonstrate. Mm-hmm. So the only thing that the, the, the user, the other person, the delegate, um, has an issue with there is actually having a go themselves to practice, but um, but we you know most people have really enjoyed it. Um, most people have enjoyed the fact they haven't had to leave the office or you know leave the patients because um, you know leaving there. But mainly, what we do is general practice uh, training or occupational health nurses or um, you know hospital stuff. But mainly, it's um, 
people nurses that are working in general practice or healthcare assistants or care homes. So, mm. so it's been good. I mean, the other thing we've had to do is, is get into PPE. Um, very early on in this process, I was asked to, um, to see if I could uh, give people uh, face masks and, um, you know, uh, gloves, et cetera, et cetera. And I wasn't really interested in it at first, but, but actually um, I've become very involved in it. So I've almost got developed, which has really been fantastic, to be honest, is an international, you know, PPE business. I am dealing with people from the USA, from South Africa, from India, you know, from Canada, and from Australia, all different parts of the world. And I've developed a, a fantastic uh, network and resource and to be able to supply uh, PPE uh, to individuals, to hospitals, um, and to anybody who wants it. So I've become, I didn't see that. I didn't see it at the beginning of the year. If you said to me I was going to be involved in selling face masks or, or nitrile gloves um, or, or even, um, you know, testing equipment um, and tests, then I wouldn't have believed you. But actually, it's been, um, it's been very good, and I've really thoroughly enjoyed it. That's certainly encouraging to hear. And um, albeit, of course, the uh, the remote provision of some training services has been quite a success, as you've uh, sort of outlined there. Do you think that this way of doing things could be here to stay for quite some time, even when, say, one or two years down the line, COVID-19 hopefully is no longer an issue and we've got a working vaccine, just because there might still be a little bit of prolonged anxiety or just that sense that actually doing it this way works? A bit of both, I think. I think that what it's opened up is that people feel that, you know, they can still get some training, um, live training um, online. But the, I don't think anything will ever replace the face-to-face meeting, use the face-to-face practical elements of some aspects of what we deliver. Um, won't ever be able to be uh, delivered in any other way. Um, but I do think we are talking a long haul here. I think that um, I think that we will be doing webinars um, for the rest of our business, you know, like we'll, we'll develop it um, and we'll offer it as a separate offering to um, to us, some of our face-to-face courses. And some things we won't ever deliver face-to-face again, I don't think, um, because of the nature of why, you know, what people want from us. And it's changing all the time. So, um, you know, the NHS changes, the, 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 the aspect of training um, changes, um, a lot, and um, you know, what, whatever we 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 are quite innovative. We we deliver, we write and deliver our own courses, um, and you know, we deliver our own packages. We bespoke them for clients. It's, you're not going to get the same course twice from us. So, so I do think that it is here to stay. Um, whether COVID is here or not, I think that this way of working is some people's preferred uh, method of learning. Mm. It's certainly going to be an interesting time for the industry, um, and one of the sort of yeah. few positives to come out of the uh, the COVID nineteen period, albeit it has been a very sensitive and challenging time for many, is the innovation that we've seen during this time, and leadership certainly has been a uh, key part of that. Um, with regards to, of course, what you've learned during this uh, pandemic, um, of course a lot about the remote working side of things is something you'll have picked up during this time. But I can imagine you've also learned an awful lot about the people around you and how they've applied themselves when the chips have been down and it's been really a time of adversity for you. Yes, most definitely. There's been a lot of, um, you know, changes in, in the way we work and stuff. 
um, you know, have um, have been, you know, quite anxious and quite worried. You know, should they come into the office? Should they work from home? You know, what should they do on a, on a sort of daily basis? Some training staff that we have, should the course go ahead or not? You know, so some decisions have had to be made that have been quite difficult. Um, but nonetheless, most of us have adapted to that. In fact, all of us have adapted to it, really, in the sense that, um, you know, our staff um, are coming in, um, you know, only when they need to come in. Um, and they, they've quite enjoyed working from home, albeit it's not what they prefer. And they would prefer to have the, you know, the team. They would prefer to have people around them. Um, but we've managed to be using things like Zoom. <laughs> I think everybody's been using Zoom um, for, a, for a while. And, you know, for the last eight months or nine months, we've been using it. And it's, it's, it's not it's not fantastic in the terms of, you know, the, 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 the rapport you, you can develop um, as being a team. But actually, as a, you know, as a, as a mechanism for seeing each other, et cetera, and still having meetings, and it's been okay. It's not people's preferred method, but it has been okay. Um, but yeah, but are those that just don't, you know, don't, don't adapt. And but um, we haven't had that problem, so it's been good. Mm-hmm. All of our staff are fairly uh, flexible, um, you know, in the way that they 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 want to work. And some have actually preferred working from home. So, and mm. um, it's. Yeah. It, it's a very important part of the uh, the whole debate on mental health and well-being during this time, this uh, discussion about yeah. what is to become of our working practices, because the social isolation elements of the lockdown, um, of course, can't be ignored. And it is difficult when that face-to-face interaction is being deprived um, from going into the office and socialising every day, having face-to-face meetings, for example. But as well, for those people who, of course, may not like the commute as much, and for them it's um, easier in terms of their work-life balance to remain at home, they can still get that sort of contact through technology and for some people it is um, sufficient just how important is sort of managing mental health and well-being in leadership do you think both in terms of safeguarding your own when you're sort of leading the charge at a time like this and also that of everybody that you're working with I think it's imperative that we, you know, we look after people's mental health. It's a big issue. I think, um, you know, the awareness of that has actually um, increased over um, the, these months that, that, that people have been isolated. I think it's a, a problem in general for everyone, not just the workforce. And um, I think it's a, it's a problem for dual public. I think it's a problem for older people and I think it's a problem for for, for the workforce in general in, in terms of that. And I think uh, we really do have to, um, you know, listen to people. Um, and I always check in with my staff, um, you know, on a daily basis we check in um, just to make sure that, they, you know, they are okay, they've got everything they need um, and that they are, you know, that, that they're doing okay, they're doing well. Um we haven't had any issues with that. Um, we're one or two uh, members of the team who, you know, do like to have that um, interaction with people. Um, and I found that um, if they've been in the office on their own, um, they're quite kind of lonely and isolated, um, as well as, you know, it would be if it was at home. So um, I, I must admit, I've had to go into the office um, on, you know, on a regular basis. Um, just to make sure that um, everybody is okay and that staff are doing okay. So I have had that face-to-face interaction um, with people um, in the office, at least um, you know once a week, um, if I can, um, to go in and, um, and, and and go into my office, which is you know it's about ten miles from where we where, where we live, so it's not too far and mm-hmm. it's an easy journey. 
So yeah, I think it's I I think it's vital. I really do. Um, you know, it, people can get you know very isolated. Um, so it's important mm. to, to keep an eye on that. It is important. It is important to combat that social isolation as well. And uh, for somebody as well who's in a leadership role, I think it's also important recognising that it's okay to have a moment to take stock yourself and take a step back and almost switch off because um, it can be difficult when you're sucked into the hectic world of running a business, even at the best of times, when you're managing a crisis and having to be essentially a beacon of inspiration and reassurance for the people around you. Sometimes you need to take a little bit of time out and try and find a bit of direction of your own, don't you? Yes, absolutely. And I think that's really essential. Um, you know, I have, um, I've always had a coach, you know, a business coach that, um, that I've used, um, and I still continue to do that. It's always been remote. Um, but I think it's really important. The other thing I think is really important is the ability to put boundaries in place, you know, um, and to have a, a a, 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 a really set routine of if you're working from home, then you you know you use this room or you use this office, and you leave that at a certain time. And you know you, you need to have that when you're working from home because otherwise home and work just get mixed up, and you know and that can be really stressful for people because there's no differentiation um, between between home and work, and um, you know everybody needs time out. Um, running a business like I do and the PPE stuff I've been doing has really made that meant that I've had to be available, you know, almost 24-7. And so it's been quite difficult. There have been some mornings when I get to bed at 7 or 8 a.m., you know, and nobody can get me from 8 a.m. until about 11 a.m. because I'm having some sleep. Um, and then what happened was I just decided I couldn't continue like that. I've been doing it for months. And I just could not continue. So I had to put some boundaries in. Right, I will finish at midnight and I will start again at 9 a.m. And that's it. And so that's what I've done. And I've pretty much stuck to it for a couple of months now. And it's made a big difference um, for myself particularly. And because you are the leader, you are leading everybody. You've got responsibility for everything. And you, you, you know, but you also need some time for yourself and you need some time out. And I've got a, a disabled father, you know, who lives in Scotland, and you know, he he had frequent accidents and falling and all that sort of stuff. So we've got all of that type of stuff to go on as well. So you know, you do have a life outside of work, um, and it's important that you have that mm. um, work-life balance. And, and it's really important, I think, mental health-wise, for you to do that at home. You know, because if you're working from home and you are uh, working twenty-four-seven, and there's no differentiation between home life and personal life and work then it gets a bit blurred and it's difficult Mm, it is absolutely and I am conscious that we are just um, running short of time Annie and I do want to talk about the future just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the program today because given the announcement uh, made by the Prime Minister uh, just uh, last week it seems as if we are going to be in this for the long haul with COVID-19 restrictions and the new normal as it's called Um, but as we're continuing to grapple with that over the, uh, the next few months what is it that you're really hoping to to achieve at AB Health Group, and indeed, what is it that you sort of where where is it rather that you want to be in a year's time? Where do you see the business being this time in twelve months? Well, I think you know I, I want to see it change. Um, it has changed. I want to continue doing the PPE stuff and doing all the things that we are actually doing right now, and make it a long term business rather than just a short term business. 
And so, you know, I'm looking at um, ways of doing that. I've moved into medical technology a little with uh, COVID-19 testing, immunochromatography and um, antigen and antibody testing. And, you know, I'd really like to move into the sort of med tech, um, you know, environment and, and, and continue that. Um, I haven't, you know, I haven't um, done very much with it, but um, I, I, in a year's time, I expect that that will be, um, you know, a, a, a larger part of our business than it is now. Um, so, you know, I know it's it, it's been, um, you know, it's been difficult for for businesses to stay ahead. It's been difficult to um, stay afloat. I mean, you know, we got a bank loan from the government, which has been really useful, really fantastic to help us, you know, forward going forward, and that's been great. And I'm so grateful for that. Um, but also, you know, wanting to think about how we, we move forward in a different world. It is going to be very different um, than it has been. And, you know, and, and, and that's inevitable. Yeah. Certainly is, um, and um, it will be keeping a close eye certainly on how things do change over the uh, the next uh, few months. It is all mm-hmm. part of what we do here at the Leaders Council, chronicle the realities of British leadership as time goes by, particularly during one of the most notable crises of our time. And just given how enlightening it's been having you join us on the programme today, Annie, I think it would be wonderful at some point in this next year to catch up and have you back on the show with us, just to see how well, things are coming along. Oh, yes, I would be delighted to do that. Absolutely delighted. Yeah, absolutely. I would certainly welcome that opportunity. It's been a real, real pleasure, Annie, having you join us on today's programme. And most importantly, until we do hopefully speak in future, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on too. Thank you, and you too. Thank you very much. I'd certainly reiterate that message to every single one of our listeners tuning in as well. Do please continue to be considerate of others and look after yourselves because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. It was a pleasure welcoming Annie Barr, MBE, onto today's show, CEO of AB Health Group. Uh, next up on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from 
not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and, uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care 
system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and 
chivying people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. 
we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels. I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's 
the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from 
the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. 
Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up 
in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.